0: And a warm welcome to Afternoons With Me. I'm Bill Arnold. How are you today, my dear listeners? I hope you've had a good weekend. It's Monday. I like Mondays. We've got a great show planned today. My friend Patrick Albanese will be joining me. And then Seth Haynes, who's written a book called The Book of Waking Up, Experiencing the Divine Love That Reorders a Life. We'll be on after Patrick and then a full hour with Ken Samples. He's a theologian and philosopher. We're going to talk about the Trinity. Hmm? kind of an easy subject. Talk about what it is and what it is not. That's all coming up on the show today. So don't budge. We'll take 60 seconds. and Bring on Patrick. I'm Neil Stave, a manager of Faith Radio. You know, whether you call them resolutions or goals or priorities, they all represent how we want to order our lives in the days ahead. And I hope that one of your objectives is to be more systematic in giving to your church first and to ministries that help you grow in your faith. Now Faith Radio is making a difference in your life and you're receiving daily benefit from this ministry. Join us as an ongoing monthly giver and stand with us financially throughout this new year. You can make your gift online today at myfaithradio.com. We all love getting something for free. Here's something that's free that you can really use. It's the free Faith Radio app. You can use the app to listen to the live stream, access program podcasts, and stay informed with all the latest contests and events today. All you have to do is download the free Faith Radio app in iTunes or Google Play. Just search for Faith Radio, download the app, and enjoy Faith Radio wherever you go. Download the free Faith Radio app and start listening today. What would you do with a brain if you had one? Do? Why, if I had a brain, I could... I could while away the hours, confirm and with the flowers, consulting with the rain. And my head, I'd be scratching while my thoughts were busy hatching if I only had a brain. Welcome to the show. I'm so glad. On Mondays, I get to welcome Patrick Albanese, my friend and colleague from the great state of Iowa. Patrick, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me. Yeah. I just... Opening that safety seal on a gallon of milk, three hours in the making. Nice. (laughs) That's the the strongest glue in the world, right there. Uh, So there was some interesting
0: television on last night, uh, the Golden Globes, uh, hosted by Ricky Gervais. It's interesting, the the, uh, Ricky Gervais monologue is cruel and mean-spirited, but it's got kernels of truth in it that are just deadly.
1: Well, and it's a taste of Hollywood's own medicine. I mean, they regularly um engage in it's not just character assassination they're mean oh i agree they they they're mean uh and uh you know normally on those award stages you get lectures uh you get lectures not just about you know let's say Donald Trump or republicans you know cuz usually that's their target Uh, but uh, they certainly don't like Christians. And if you are in any of those categories, if you're a Republican or a Trump supporter or a Christian, they don't like you and they let you know it. Mm -hmm. And they say some pretty nasty things. So, you know, it was interesting to see how they dealt with it. They did not deal with it well. The faces in the crowd uh, were not smiling. No, they're so
0: self-absorbed and they have such a feeling of self-importance that if you attack them, uh, they don't like it because they no. live in their little bubble.
1: Yeah, they're the people that are always saying, can't we all get along just as soon as we get rid of you? Right. <laughs> you know? and, and and what what's really amazing is you go, you know, okay, he was uh, a bit off color, but uh, the things he was talking about did happen. I mean, these weren't made up things. They're, they do have a problem with uh, abusing young actors and actresses in that town. They do have a casting couch that still exists and people get harmed by it. Mm-hmm. And they're all aware of it. They're all aware of it. I was out there for 21 years and it's you hear stories all the time. People, they know it exists. Uh, so I think that was why it was such a sore spot because they sort of have this, you know... Uh, arrangement where we don't talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I think you remember after Trump got elected when suddenly you started seeing this clearing house. I mean, think of the names, Louis CK, Harvey Weinstein, Matt Lauer, Charlie Rose, uh, people that had been doing some stuff that was pretty nasty for years and suddenly the left starts clearing out their closet because they go, Why didn't why didn't anybody listen to us when they were we were trying to tell them that, you know, Trump's not a very nice guy? It's like, well look at all the people you're protecting. And I think they thought if they started to clean out their own house a little bit, Kevin Spacey, there's some big names on that list. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, and I think they were satisfied with themselves that they had successfully sort of put it to rest. And then Ricky Gervais comes along and says, you know, I don't care because last year I'm going to do this. And I, I certainly don't need your approval and I don't need your money. So here goes. Uh, I think that's what upset them. It's like, no, we're, we're not supposed to talk about that anymore. Yeah, it's all gone. We're good here. We're the good guys.
0: Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting the way he, he said, you don't really know a lot of what goes on in the real world. You know that you do live in this this bubble, and you fly on your private jets and have adoring yeah. fans all the time, and you get to have your own ideologies, and you tell that to, you tell your ideologies to everybody, and, well, and everyone is supposed to think you're so smart. But the truth well, is, maybe you're not.
1: Yeah, and I I think I've said it on this show before. There's sort of an an attitude that uh, uh, some of the Hollywood people have that well, let's see if you look around the world, you see that there are. Um, Some uh, very uh, smart people are rich. Well, I'm rich, so that means I must be smart. And if I'm smart, then people probably want to hear my opinions on just about everything. But, you know, it's while the same left is the one that will chastise somebody because their academic pedigree isn't up to snuff, it's like, oh, I'm sorry, you went to University of Mankato? That's not quite Ivy League enough for us. Uh, If you look at the people that are out there spouting all of, you know, their talking points, quite a few of them didn't finish high school, except they say, well, he's very successful and very rich, so we must listen to him. (laughs) Okay. I don't know what – I never know what the criteria are, what the rules are, but I can rest assured guarantee you that they are opposite of whatever you think they should be.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, here we are. We're off in the new year, 2020, and I I think it's uh, about time we get some goals and have some ambition. Yes. You go first. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well I I, I I have um there's a uh a resolution that I um am working um you know pretty super hard on like and uh such and it's I'm trying to eliminate some of the um filler uh type things from sentences and such. So uh that's what I'm working on. <laughs> yeah. How am I doing? How well, am I doing? It's right.
0: a little uh, it needs some work. You know, my, my my method uh is pretty much the same. Just try to spit out the next sentence, you know, and try to have as fewer of those what do you call filler words and things you add in, the ums and ahs and yep. stuff. You you know what I'm yep. trying to say.
1: And such. And such, know. yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. No,
1: I mean, uh, of course, as I, I think I might have mentioned to you the other day, I'm trying to start the year fresh with no animosity b- between me and anyone else. So just feel free to apologize anytime now. <laughs> <laughs> you get that you fire that up. For
0: yeah. Me. Well, my uh, my mission is simple. Uh, know Christ, and make him known. I think that's uh, pretty much what I want to do this year. That's what I wanted to do last year. That's what I'm going to want to do in 2021. So I'm a pretty simple guy, Patrick.
1: I, I Don't you love that that one bumper sticker and, you know, it, it uses those, the homonyms, you know, no Jesus, the N-O, right. no peace, N-O, peace, and then no Jesus, K-N-O-W, and then no peace. And I'm not much of a bumper sticker guy, um, but uh, I go, that's a good one. That one will go on the wall.
0: Yeah, it's you know, a great I, one.
1: It is a really good one. I mean, I do have my 84 Chicago Cubs uh, uh, National League. Uh, well, East champions, they kind of messed up there toward the end. But, you know, yeah, I got that bumper sticker. Mm -hmm. One day I'm going to take it off the car. I've actually transferred it from car to car. I just cut it right out of the bumper. (laughs) It's worked out pretty well for me. Kills the resale value on the trade-in. But you know what? When you're a devoted fan.
0: Yeah. But when uh, you look at what your your year is going to be like, where you want to put your time, your money, your energy – it's, you know, C.S. Lewis put it so beautifully when he said, what isn't eternal is eternally out of date. Now, you and I love an occasional football game. We like watching sports. Uh, but, you know, in light of eternity, none of this matters. The only thing that matters is what you do for, for Christ.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, as I've gotten older, too, it's uh, I, I look at things like I, I enjoy, like you say, a good football game and um try to watch ones when I can but I try not to let it take the place of real life. So uh I I sometimes will say to my wife, "Ooh, I really like the teams in the Super Bowl of this year." So my rule is kind of uh, suspended for that particular day. But generally speaking, if somebody says, "Hey, there's a thing I want to do with the family." um or if my wife is like, "You know, I I want to go to the later service today." And that's you know, right when the football game is on that I want to watch, I take uh, real life and real Christ before the football. And I, and I and now it's a small thing, but I realize if I can't even make that little adjustment, then I'm not doing a, as good a job as I could be as being a warrior for him.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with you entirely, Patrick. Um, take a little break. We'll come back. Uh, we'll continue this discussion. Patrick Albanese is my guest, my friend and colleague from prestigious West Des Moines. Back in just a minute. Back to the show. Patrick Albanese is my guest, and here we are, 2020. Day six. Uh, so Patrick, how are you doing on your uh New Year's resolutions? Have you uh broken any of your dietary
1: resolutions yet? Every last one of them in record time. <laughs> you gonna change your diet this year? Uh no. No, are you? okay. Uh I should. Okay. Uh, I don't eat with kids. That that's well, that's my excuse.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, you're, you're not a guy who wants to see food go to waste. And I get that, you know, and if your kids eat half their meal and it's sitting there and you're going to go, I'm not going to just throw this food away.
1: I, oh, oh, I'll, you know what I have? I've have actually mastered at the restaurant is uh, under-ordering. Not something you could ever accuse me of, right? In the right. past few <laughs> <laughs> meals with me.
0: Yes, but you under-order.
1: I under-order because uh, look, uh, yesterday was uh, my wife Janet's birthday. And so she wanted to go to this little local restaurant for a, a brunch and the kids go hungry and they uh, are ordering things. I'm like, whoa gosh, let's see. That's got the two eggs and the two bacon and the hash browns and the two pancakes. And you're having some sort of cinnamon bun appetizer. <laughs> <laughs> like I'll have a, a sprig of parsley. Please. Right. Right. <laughs> On a plate. And, and one, one pillow up. of shredded wheat. One. Yeah. Just one, one of those, the smaller <laughs> ones too, not the bigger ones. And don't frost it. Right. Not, not frost I want it plain. So uh, I know exactly how much to under order in order to make room for the cleanup act. Yes. Yeah. Although, you know, but it's it's unfortunately, it's an awful lot of pancakes start going in the gullet. (laughs) You know, I I should cut back on those. And, you know, other things in my diet, although because you never know what's bad anymore. It changes every day. And like I look at these reports on the dangers of sodium and I take those with a grain of salt. I do. (laughs) Can you do that? I I would as to do that as well. Yeah, yeah, you're very wise but, to do that. Yeah, so I and it, but yeah, you I know you. You're a clean eater. You're a, a very clean eater. Uh, and and uh, I sort of blame it on the kids, but it's not beyond me to say, you know, those Dolly Madison zingers are looking really good in the lunchbox, <laughs> aren't they, kids? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Let's get the family pack.
0: Yeah, so. I'm. Focusing a lot on, on God's word this year in terms of memorization, I want to make this to be a big year for um, increased memorization. Because when I I figured this out, Patrick, when I start memorizing something, and I literally go over it 50, 60, a hundred times in my head, I start to see things in Scripture I've never seen before. And right now I'm I, I pledged that like last year I would um, memorize the entire book of Ephesians, and I. Didn't even come close. So I'm, I'm back in it this year. And I have to tell you, as you start looking at uh, e- Ephesians chapter 1 and you start to see the, the grace and the spiritual resources that are available that God pours into our lives freely and generously. You go, there is reason for incredible hope every day.
1: Yeah. Now, and so think about that in 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 the scheme of what we're fed on a on a regular basis and a daily diet. And then who's in charge of dispensing that information? You know, why is it that everything is is a four alarm fire, and everything is the end of the world, and every last thing that's going on is that's it? It can't get any worse than this. And when in truth, uh, things, of course, for the human beings, have never been better in the history of the world. And God's message is just as relevant today as it was when people were able to hang on to it and learn it and know it when it seemed much more hopeless.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yet, you know, we we inflate, it's, it's we, we take these trivial things, we make them the most important stuff in the world, and then we take the important stuff and we trivialize it and we discard it. Uh, and, and that is unfortunately a thing that has happened, I think, with, with God's word a bit, You know, you just look at the way that people cast it off, like, oh, that old chestnut.
0: Or it doesn't seem to fit the culture today, so they're looking for ways to uh, reinterpret it. And that's when you're going to be down a a road of destruction. And that's when churches are going to go off the rails if, if they don't let God be God and let his word be exactly what it is.
1: Now, so here's an interesting thing. I was just talking about this uh, with some friends of yours, not mine, Yeah. but uh, um, we, no, actually it was in your studio the other day, and I, I walked away from that uh, conversation, and we, we had kind of broached this topic, and you realize that it's, it's, it's yet another fulfillment of one of God's promises that, you know, your church will grow. I know that my pastor takes it very, very seriously, preach the Word, preach the Word, preach the Word, stick to the Word, and God takes care of you. And you look at the churches that have said, you know what, we could just tweak this a little bit there, add a little salt over there. Uh, We all know what that can do. But the churches that have done that, instead of it growing their congregations and growing their church, it has shrunk them and shut their doors. It's almost as if God's saying, I told you Mm -hmm. how this works. You, you, You facilitate the truth. You speak my word, and I will see to it that it grows because that's, you know, you have my protection. Uh, but have you seen one thrive and survive? And I think you have to wait the long haul for some of these things. I think some of these prosperity gospel churches, at least on the surface, appear to be doing well. But how many of those have we had over our lifetimes that you say, well, how could it get any bigger than that? And then it, the house of cards falls apart. So God's delivering on that, too. And I think you can look at some of these places that have been around for the longest time saying, I think I could find the truth in this place. I think mm-hmm. it could find here. That book, that book again.
0: Yeah. Well, when you look at what Paul's letter was to the Galatians, he said in uh, 1st chapter, verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse, as we have already said. So now I say it again: If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. That's uh, pretty harsh words. I mean, that's uh, pretty harsh
1: words. I mean, even if an, years yeah. old and relevant.
0: Yes, even if an angel from heaven shows up and is preaching a different message that would be cursed
1: you know and- it's funny yeah it, it, because well we, we it's it's i've had people that'll say you know something if uh, if if jesus were real if if god were real you know he would he would give me a sign he would appear right beside me i said you know he did that already right <laughs> he did that and not only did he do that there were people that were witnesses to it saw him crucified were witnesses to the resurrection and still said no, thank you. Right. So, what more could he possibly do that would convince you? It's it's one of the things that says why is it left up to faith? You go because that's the only thing that's left. There were there were people that saw it all, had all the proof they needed, and they still said, yeah, I'm not buying it. Mm-hmm. So at that point in time, you go, there's only grace can save them, and only at some point is your faith gonna have to kick in and say, you know what? Uh, I, ha- I have to believe because it, it, it's, the truth has been laid bare. He's given me all the proof that I need. He has given me all the proof I need.
0: You also have to recognize that you need the gift. I and mean, a lot of people don't think they need it. And unless you realize you need salvation and you need forgiveness of sins, you're going to be in trouble. I mean, if I, if I buy you a new snowblower and you live in Honolulu, you're not going to be that interested. You go, I don't need it. But When you recognize the gospel and how you need forgiveness from your sins, otherwise you are going to be condemned uh, and you realize you do need that. That's when you get your moment of truth and God reaches you through the Holy Spirit and you can confess, but it's not until you understand that you need this forgiveness.
1: You know, how did we become so arrogant that we thought we were above it all?
0: Ah, good question.
1: And when I say we, I I don't, I'm not including you and me. I think we're better than that. (laughs) (laughs) Oh I'm sorry. I'm just... <laughs>
0: <laughs> that that doesn't make me laugh.
1: <laughs> no, it's 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 true. And I you know, I, I often wonder, although, you know, and i guess people know our our story. You were the one that introduced me to the gospel, even though it had been presented to me by, by people in the past. And I, I was raised Catholic and uh so I did all that stuff. But uh something just didn't connect with me. And I never thought anything would connect with me because I thought that I was maybe smarter than it. And so how did you, you know, you you approach a guy going, well, here's one of those guys that thinks he's smarter than this, uh, than the written word of God. And you don't want to insult them by saying, you know, you're not, you're not smarter than the word of God. And uh, but you 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 want to encourage them to take a look at it because they have to come to that realization themselves like oh do i need this oh do i need this grace oh mm-hmm. do I, need, I i need what god is offering me how could i have been so unaware how could i have been so blind it's 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 a delicate dance to try and bring somebody to that point
2: mm-hmm.
0: well i had been praying for you for months uh so maybe it was also through prayer of myself and other people that were interested in your soul and salvation, and you'd started working for the company, and I thought, here's a guy who uh, is kind of dabbled in new age and, and isn't, uh, hasn't made right with God. So I'm sure there was part of that as well, that the Holy Spirit revealed yeah. truth to you in that moment. I had
1: questions. Yeah. I had questions, and, and I did find myself, I said, well these people don't seem to be too upset by my, uh, uh, questions. And, you know, I, that was in a time in my life where I thought, "Whoa, wait till I give them this little stumper of a question. They won't, this, <laughs> yeah. you know, you, you know, the attitude, right. And you slowly, uh, come to the realization, like, what was I thinking? And I, I can, I always hope that I can be that same type of person for somebody else. If, you know, questions and patience and, Uh, you know, you, you're, you're, you're kind with people and the book will do the work. Right. Uh, meeting you and and some other friends were, was part of my journey, but I think it was just the, you, you grow up in something and you just say, oh, I'm going to go meander on off. You know, I don't, I want to call myself a prodigal son, but, uh, there's a little bit of that in all of us, I think.
0: Yeah. Patrick, always good to talk to you and thank you so much for doing the show. I will catch you again next week. I'll be around. Terrific. Patrick albany has been my guest, my friend and colleague from the great state of Iowa. We'll take a short break and be right back with Seth Haynes. I hope your Monday's going well. So far, so good here. Awfully glad to uh, have Patrick on. And now, my next guest is Seth Haynes. He's written a couple of books. The one we're going to chat about today is called The Book of Waking Up, Experiencing the Divine Love that Reorders a Life. There are certainly lots of pain that we all have in life, and there are lots of ways that we look to uh, numb, self-medicate, check out. Um, And we're going to talk to Seth about all that. Seth, welcome to the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, uh, congrats on your first book, Coming Clean. Uh, I love your story, and uh, congrats on this one. This is—I love the way this is laid out. You write beautifully.
2: Man, I really appreciate it. This was a, a little bit of a risk from a writing perspective, as far as the layout goes. So I appreciate that you recognized it. No,
0: it is probably a little bit risky, but it's—it's uh, it's easy to engage with. It's—it's uh, it's really kind of easy to to navigate your way through the book, and it's uh, it's good reading. It's I like it.
2: Yeah, thanks. Yeah, so the book, um, to let your listeners know, the book is laid out in 163 uh, short sort of micro chapters, snippets, almost page-length uh, snippets that sort of build a continuing argument around um, or up to uh, the point of, of what does it mean to, to truly live a sober, awake life? Mm-hmm.
0: Let's talk about just the uh, the anatomy of pain, and and we live in a sinful, broken world. Yet, we always have w- ways in which we're trying to escape something.
2: Yeah, so true, so true. Yeah, and I think um, to illustrate it, I mean, my story is that illustration. I I um, had lived a pretty you know, normal, middle-class life. I was an attorney practicing in uh, Fayetteville, Arkansas, had three children, had a fourth on the way, and in that first year, um, he really just struggled uh, to take off. He struggled to, to gain weight, and, and it ended up um, right before his, his first birthday uh, in a stint in the Arkansas Children's Hospital, and it was in that Children's Hospital where the doctors sort of ran out of answers, and there was a, a moment, a few days there, where they actually thought we, we, you know, we'd lose him. Uh, the doctors said they didn't know what else to do; they could make him comfortable, and it was a moment when um, I was just uh, uh, hit with a soul-crushing pain. I mean, the thought of losing your child—what kind of a pain is that, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, and and so I called. Uh, someone and said, hey, I would like you to bring me a Nalgene bottle of a gin, and um, that someone did, and i that's the moment when I started to just sort of drink to absolutely numb the pain of my sick child, um, and, and as it would turn out, the doctors did figure out what to do to save him. He's still with us today, which is a, almost a miracle. It feels like a miracle, um, but even in that year, uh, the touch-and-go year after we were released from the hospital. I began to uncover just more and more pains just the pain of the potential loss of faith and not hearing from god and the pain of um, not experiencing my own healing as a child and all of those things just sort of uh, amped up emotional pains in my own life and and um, i just continued to use the bottle to to drown that pain out until um, that moment in a a church in austin texas where uh, god got my attention and shook me shook me up and helped me to understand how to come clean.
0: Seth, did you have uh how long did this run last?
2: Well that's a gr- that's a great question because the truth is I was probably a functional dependent um for years beforehand. I I you know I I'm a six foot two uh, one side of my family is German. The other side of my family is Irish. So if I was made to do anything, it was to drink. I can just hold a lot of alcohol. So there were uh, years before that hospital, stand, probably three or four years where I had, you know, a functional drinking problem. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were occasions when my wife would say, hey, are you drinking too much? And and I would swear it off from time to time to prove I didn't have a problem. Uh, but I kind of always went back to it. So I would say probably three or four years I had a functional problem, but it was the year after my son was released from the hospital where I just kind of went all in.
0: Mm-hmm. Seth, do you think we're more wired for pleasure or do you think we're more wired for escape?
2: I mean, I think that's a great question. I think a lot of times the pleasure is the escape. Okay. I mean, I think when we when we have the kinds of, you know, pains of, of life, whether those are existential pains, you know, the pain of, of the death of someone or the... Uh, pain that you lose a job or the pain of abuse, I think it's very natural. And, and the, you know, the research that I do in the book of Waking Up uh, from other experts demonstrates this. It's very natural to say, man, this hurts. I want out. Mm-hmm. I want a way out. And so the escape is really the response to the pain. And then what we do, how we escape uh, is really uh, it. it, it we use pleasure to escape so often, and so that's where the pleasure comes in to sort of facilitate that way of escape. The drinking, it's a pleasure uh, principle in the brain that sort of numbs us out, you know, whether uh, or maybe drugs, or maybe it's shopping, or maybe it's eating. Whatever it is, it sort of floods our system with pleasure so that we can escape the pain. I think those things are pretty, pretty related.
0: Mm-hmm. Now, God obviously uh, designed us to have and enjoy pleasure, uh, what happened to this? Where it got so corrupted?
2: Yeah, I mean, at the base, of, at the at the base of it all. I mean, you're right. God created the world for the purpose of sustaining our life, of giving us pleasure, of giving us joy. And why? Because He wanted to show us how much He loves us. I mean, He gave us bread to show us, mm-hmm. you know, you need to eat. Let's make this feel good, right? Here's some bread you need to have, uh, you need to procreate. Let's make that uh, the procreation feel good. You mm-hmm. know, let's, let's imbue this world with good feeling, pleasurable things so that you could use them um, to understand how much I love you. Um, but I do think that what, what's happened is, you know, that listen, we live in a sinful, broken uh, world, and sin entered the world at a grave cost, and that cost uh, really is a, a pain. And so when the pain comes, when the brokenness comes, when it underlies, um, you know, any action that we do, we're so prone to misuse the things of pleasure to kind of mute that pain. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I I think, you know, it comes from uh, sin and then what we do with that sinfulness, what we do with that brokenness, um, you know, it either drives us to addiction or it drives us back into the divine love of God.
0: So Seth, let's talk about pain a little bit more, because there's so many places in Scripture where we're supposed to look at pain and realize that this is a gift that God is probably putting in our life to make us into the man or woman He wants us to be.
2: Yeah, and in the book I talk about this, there's this great, great um, run um, by C.S. Lewis uh, in the problem of pain, and he talks about this, and he says that pain is the, the megaphone to arouse the, the sleeping world, I think he says, um, uh, to God, and and I think this is the very point. I mean, I think this is what we uh, see in Romans, is that the groaning, the pain, is supposed to lead us back to the only one who can fix the pain. It's supposed to point us to the places we hurt and point us to the one who can heal it, and that's uh, obviously Christ. I mean, He is the one who comes in with His divine love and is the great physician, is the ultimate healer, and that is the purpose of pain.
0: When you think of some of the ongoing suffering that people do, physical pain, they would love for it to go away. It doesn't. And it starts to just really disrupt their quality of life. Uh, it's it's real hard to to make sense of that and to say, um, you know, hang in there because what are the other options?
2: Yeah, and man, so much grace for that. Oh, I, I agree. I mean, I think you know, there's <laughs> so many times I've had someone come to me when I've spoken or talked about this and just said, you know, look, I, you know, my back is out or I have. Uh, you know, knee or hip issues, or I have uh, certain types of arthritis, and what am I supposed to do? I need my pain medication to operate. So there's got to be a lot of grace for that. But I think throughout the history of the church, we see and we we know of accounts of people who had great pain and who submitted that pain to Christ. I mean, we actually see that all throughout um, the scriptures, the woman with the issue of blood who submitted her pain to Christ and was healed. And and I know that that always doesn't end in healing these days, but um, I think a lot about uh, a writer named Marva Dawn, writer, academic, um, and her writing is so beautifully, beautifully done. It's so well done. Um, so much of it is about God being with us. It's about God disrupting the power structures. You know, she she writes about God tabernacling with us, and she is um, in constant pain, my understanding is. My understanding is that she has a lot of of, of physical ailments, but she's turned those physical ailments, she's trusted those physical ailments to Christ. And as a result of that, her relationship uh, with Him is so deep that it just oozes out uh, of her pen. Um, And so I do think that there is this piece of, of, of even if we deal with constant physical pain, and it's easy for me to say, because I don't, but Mm -hmm. even if we deal with constant physical pain, if we can submit that to Christ and bring that under his authority and learn what we need to learn from it, we can be a blessing to others.
0: Seth, in the world that we seem to have right now, there's lots of people who are isolated and they're depressed and they are they don't have a lot of hope for maybe their circumstances in life. Because I, I hear from listeners that, that will tell me things that I just think is so difficult mm-hmm. to hear. Um, so mm-hmm. it seems that you know, it's so natural for people to want to simply change the way they feel. We do that all day long. I'm hungry. I want to feel yeah. differently. So I eat. Oh, good. I yeah. feel differently. I feel sluggish. I'll go for a walk. I walk around the block. Oh, I feel better. I want, you know, you always want to change the yeah. way you feel. But when you're yep. kind of in that cycle of maybe uh, isolation or, or sadness or depression or uh, loneliness uh, and you're not taking good proactive steps, you can end up in, in addictions that you just don't know how you got yourself in there.
2: Yeah, that's so true. And I think, you know, in the book, I do talk about the pain of of scarcity, Mm -hmm. the pain of abuse, the pain of loss. And I think when we talk about loneliness, I mean, we really are dealing with scarcity. There's never enough relationship. But I don't feel connected enough. I don't know people enough. People don't know me enough. There's this enoughness. And I think in this culture of just wicked isolation, man, I mean, I feel like we're all so isolated. Um, Even if I'm sitting here in my office with my door closed, you know, like we're all so isolated these days, so plugged into our computers, so technologically isolated. I think loneliness is a natural outflow of that. But I also think that if you want to Feel different. I mean, God's given us again mechanisms um, to deal with that feeling of isolation and that loneliness. I mean, He has created a community of His body for us to plug into, for us to get to know, uh, for us to be known in. Um, and so, a lot of times when I hear folks talk about loneliness, I ask them, like, "What are you doing in the physical world to connect with the people of God?" And if the answer is, well, really nothing, I'm I'm not in a local body, I'm not in a local community, I don't have people that know me um, at an intimate level, then um, I say, man, why don't you take that as the first step? Get off Twitter and take that as the first step. Mm
0: -hmm. In your uh, book, you talk a little bit about the the epiphany of your sobriety. I'd love our listeners to hear about that.
2: Yeah, so um, for me, uh, the—well, and I guess epiphany— in that sense, could be one of several things. But the moment when I knew that I had to come clean, I was really hungover. I was in the middle of a uh, lobby, a Methodist church lobby in Austin, Texas, at a human care conference. And there was a, a girl, a woman who walked in. Uh, she was from Minnesota. I kind of knew her story. I did know her story, but I didn't know that she was living in Austin at the time. She had just moved. And she walked in, uh, she was a recovering alcoholic, and in that moment, hungover, looking uh, across the lobby and out the the door where she was walking in, I just had that sense that it was now or never that God was saying to me, like, you can do this now, or things can get really bad. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was kind of the epiphany that shook me up, that I was using something uh, to numb this pain, and that it was time to, to kind of put that something aside. But that epiphany has grown and over the last four or five years really into an understanding that um, this idea of sobriety isn't a one-time thing. It's not that you quit the bottle and that you just walk away from it and, and it's the one and done, all good, um, but that it's this constant idea of, of what happened with me and alcohol now has to happen with me and food and with me and technology and with me and my relationships all of these good created things to live a truly sober life, all these good created things have to find their order under Christ. And all of those things would be used only to the extent that they help me love him, serve him, uh, and praise him.
0: You said that beautifully, Seth. Let me take a little break. Seth Haynes is my guest, and his book is called The Book of Waking Up, Experiencing the Divine Love that Reorders a Life. When we come back, I'm going to ask him about the word addiction, what's what's in that word? We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Seth Haynes is my guest. His book is called The Book of Waking Up, Experiencing the Divine Love That Reorders, life. And right before break, I had mentioned the word addiction. Seems like a big word, especially nowadays, because there's so many things that people seem to be addicted to, Seth.
2: Yeah, so true. It's so true, and that list keeps growing, doesn't it? It does. It used to mean drugs and alcohol, and now it means drugs and alcohol and gambling and video games and Twitter and sex and all the things.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you think of the uh, addiction that porn has become for men um, just due to its accessibility. On top of living in a broken world
2: yeah it's everywhere and and um, it, to to the point I, I think porn's actually a good example of this, but to the point, um, the word addiction you know it, it finds its origins uh, really in this this old Roman system of of slavery, where uh, an indebted servant would be quote addicted to the creditor, so if I owed you a great debt then I would work for you. I would be bonded to you, a bonded servant to you, until that debt was paid in full. So the term would mean I was addicted or attached to you until uh, the debt was satisfied. And over time, that word, uh, it morphed, it changed. And uh, William Shakespeare is one of the the first ones to kind of use it in, in, in different contexts. And the context that we would think of it more today is addicted to a thing, a substance, uh, drugs, alcohol, that sort of thing. Um, but I think it's a good it's a good description of what actually is happening in addiction. And I think it actually broadens the idea of addiction for us too. Um uh, but it, it's that thing that we are attached to. Uh whether it's again, shopping or eating or drinking or pill use or porn or video mm-hmm. games or Twitter or Facebook. I mean it's that thing that we're so attached to that we'd rather not be um, but for whatever reason, it, we feel like we owe it some service. We feel like we owe it some debt, um, and until we we write that debt relationship, we can't get out of the addiction.
0: Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the reward center and how it relates to food.
2: Yeah. So I love the the, the thing that I loved uh, the most in researching and writing this book was really talking about how really all. Um, addictions, all attachments, um, a lot of the bad habits—you know—regarding of what you want, regard regardless of what you want to call it—that those all sort of operate on the same principle, right? And it's a principle that I kind of love when you refer to as the whiz bang principle. Mm-hmm. Um, something feels good. And so we get a whiz-bang kick of neurochemicals, you know, pleasure-inducing chemicals. And so uh, when a heroin user uses heroin, there is a rush of neurochemicals that make you feel really good, make him feel really good, and then he gets that whiz-bang rush. And when he gets that whiz-bang rush, what's also released is dopamine from the reward center of the brain. And the dopamine says to the brain, hey, man, this feels really good. This worked to cure the pain. Let's do this again. Mm -hmm. And so the next time he comes down and he needs a hit, uh, that dopamine sends the signal again. Hey, remember, remember, remember. And so he reaches for the needle. He shoots up, gets the whiz-bang rush. And then again, he's flooded with his dopamine that says, this feels good. Let's keep doing it. Well, guess what? That same... Uh, group of of chemicals. The neurochemical may be different. The, the thing that makes you feel good initially may be different, but but dopamine, um, lock that, that thing that locks in the message of pleasure, is there when it comes to food. So when you eat, uh, you know a a big bag of Oreos or a huge cheeseburger, something with a lot of fat and a lot of sugar, um, something that the brain says, hey, you need to you need to do this because it's providing calories for your body. The reward center of the brain says this feels good and releases dopamine to say, "Hey, let's do this again." And that dopamine kind of etches a groove. It reminds you that, "Hey, when you were in pain, when you were hungry, this worked to fix that pain." The problem is is that so many of us use things like food not just to cure the hunger pains, but to cure the sort of existential pains of life, right? We feel depressed, we feel lonely. Uh, Our brain tells us, remember when you were hungry and you cured the pain by eating? Well, maybe that'll work for loneliness, too. And at a very young age, we learn, oh, yeah, food brings the cure for loneliness. And so when we're lonely, we eat. And the dopamine says, you feel better. You feel good. And so that's how the reward system can kind of be hijacked Mm -hmm. um, by just our base desires and and really by our desire and need um, to have some kind of pain relief.
0: So here's a uh, true or false question in your pop quiz section of your book. The pleasures produced by the Reward Center are sacramental, meant to point us to the God who created those pleasures. I'm put, yeah. I'm putting a big yes. T on that one.
2: Yes, that's the truth. <laughs> 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 the truth.
0: Big I T mean, on that one.
2: Again, yeah, big T. There's a capital T, right? Oh, like yeah. We need, we, we, need, we need to eat or we die. I, I mean, last I checked, if you don't eat or drink, you die. Uh, and so what God did is he said, hey, when you eat, you're going to feel this temporary euphoria. And when that euphoria hits, your brain is going to dump dopamine, and it's going to say, do this more. And, 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 and the hope is that when we think about that, we say, oh, God, thank you for this food thank you for this way to cure my pain. Like, I didn't create this food. It came from somewhere. you created it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, that, that, and that that rush of, of chemicals would then remind us, oh, I need to turn and look to God who gave me all good gifts, and I need to praise Him for Him. I need to love Him. I need to reverence Him for giving me those gifts. That's, that's the point of all these neurochemicals, really.
0: Yeah. Seth, what are disordered attachments, and what should we do about them?
2: yeah so um a lot of the language in this book as I started to to think through um particularly the idea of addiction um as being an attachment right an attachment uh to someone you owe a debt, as I said earlier mm-hmm. um, as I started to research and think that through, I kept running across, and this would have probably been four years ago, I kept running across this idea of disordered attachments. And it came from, I mean, you find pieces of this writing in early Augustine, you find it in Thomas Aquinas, and then um, I found it really in a pronounced way in the writings of Ignatius of Loyola, and, and he would say, um, again, you know, this isn't, this isn't me, he would say, all good gifts are meant to be, are, are meant to, sh- to help us love and serve and reverence God. But on occasion, we don't use them that way we become attached to the creation instead of the creator. And in that way, we elevate food above God. We elevate, elevate alcohol above God. So we become attached. Uh, we put our attachments in the wrong order. It's not that it's bad to eat. It's not maybe that it's bad to have a beer with a friend from time to time. What is bad is, is to misuse those things, to treat those things as God, to elevate them over God, and to put God under the created things. Mm. Some people call that idolatry, right? Yeah. But that's the idea of like sort of misordering, disordering, putting your attachments in the wrong order, not using the created things to love, serve, and reverence God, but to use them as their own ends.
0: Mm -hmm. Let's talk about Uh, What it means to be sober, because there's, I think, a lot of people have different ideas as to what it means, Um, and I'd be real curious to hear your understanding of it.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a colloquial sense that everyone agrees on, right? It's to not do the thing that you're addicted to, right? That's what everything. That's what everyone says is sobriety, and you know, I'm not here to necessarily say that that's wrong. But here's what I will say. I mean, and there's this great article that I read. Um, about a heroin user and the heroin user quit using heroin. He was he was real thin, malnourished. He starts going to NA and in NA you know at the back there are these um, these bowls of m um, and People are chain smoking, there are great big brownies. Um, and over the course of time, uh, he kicks the habit of heroin, but he uh, balloons up in his weight because he he's beginning to substitute. Uh, you know, brownies and M&Ms and sweets for yeah. this addiction that he used to have. And so the question is, um, are, is he sober? And in a sense, the answer is yes. He's not using the thing that was so bad for him anymore. Right. But in another sense, he's just traded one addiction for another. And he talks about this in this article about how he had to learn healthier coping mechanisms and and, and healthier uh, habits, and so in this book, I think the argument that I'm trying to make is that it's not to do or not do a particular thing, you know? I mean, if obviously, you can't shoot up heroin. It's illegal, and it's wrong, and it'll mm-hmm. kill you. Obviously, you can't drink seven nights a week, you know, five drinks. Yeah. Um, it'll kill you, right? Yeah. But, but over time, what we have to do is we have to realize that true sobriety means attaching to God first. And everything else underneath him. Awesome. And only as far as it'll serve him.
0: Yeah. Seth, thank you so much for coming on and doing the show. Seth Haynes has been my guest. The book is called The Book of Waking Up Experiencing the Divine Love That Reorders a Life. We'll take a short break break and be back in hour two with Ken Samples. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at myfaithradio.com.